Paramedic Insight podcast from the College of Paramedics. Data analysis and important topics from around the world of paramedic practice from the College of Paramedics. Hello and welcome to another edition of Paramedic Insights Podcast with the College of Paramedics. I'm Gary Strong. I'm joined this afternoon by Carol Robertson, who is a community specialist paramedic uh, in the Northwest. And uh, it'd be great to hear a little bit more about uh, your career and your role, Carol. I love the job title. I think every community should have one. Hello there. Um, yes, um, I'm a community specialist paramedic and I've um, worked with the Northwest Ambulance Service. I've been in this role since uh, about 2015. There is only about 10 of us in the Northwest, but we are hoping to grow that. I did originally, before I even became a paramedic, I did actually work for the airline. So I was an air stewardess, living my life going across the Caribbean and back. So it did change quite a lot around about 2002 when I joined the then Greater Manchester Ambulance Service, became a paramedic in 2004. Um, did a development supervisor role in 2008 and then did several years in the urgent care department which was around ringing back lower acuity calls up until the community paramedic role and also I am an original IHCD paramedic so alongside that I have been doing my diploma my degree currently coming towards the end of my master's which does include a module in care of the old frail adult. Wow that's that's great uh, I'm glad you um told us uh, about the pathway because it's, it's a lovely career pathway uh, and you know, as an ICD paramedic myself I think it's great to see how um, you know, we can forge our own uh, direction with, with particular interests and I'm also um, I'm just giving listeners a bit of time actually to get used to the fact that you swapped going to the Caribbean for uh, being a paramedic in Greater Manchester but, <laughs> um, you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was quite a change. Um, I do remember being quite shocked in my first few months of, of doing the job, um, but I wouldn't change it back yet. Not not yet. <laughs> well, no, good on you because uh, yeah, I, I still think that paramedic is the best job in the world, and it's got so many different ways of being a paramedic these days. And and your a job title doesn't tell the full story, does it? Because underneath it says frailty champion. And uh, I know that, that that's kind of uh, what you decided to specialise in. Tell, tell us what, what got you interested. So when I became a community specialist paramedic, very much the area that I work in, we do have an older adult population. And in fact, we're very top heavy. If you ever look at one of the charts, the population charts, where from about the age 50, 60, we are way above the NHS England, um, but we're quite low in younger people. So it actually developed. But even before that, I would say, um, I've always enjoyed going to the older person, usually who's fallen over, who needed some help, because I've always enjoyed listening to their story. And I just think, uh, don't get me wrong, there's amazing people throughout all age groups. But I just think you, you can go into an older person's house and see so many photographs, especially when it's things where they were in the, the, the uniforms from, from the World Wars. Um, and I just find that there are amazing people that you can listen and learn a lot from. So I always like those kind of roles. And I liked them, I think, more because... When you think about the role of paramedic, nearly everything we do is focused on cardiac arrest, um, traumas, uh, maternity. We All our training, everything's aimed at that, and they're all very protocol-driven. As soon as we get to an older adult, 
that you can't be very protocol driven because they don't fit into those boxes easily and that's very much I will you know we'll talk about later but actually it's it's about thinking outside the box and working a bit differently and I think that's what I've always enjoyed around older adults. So there's a lovely combination there of, of, of clinical interest and, and challenge but also uh, I'm totally with you on, on uh, listening to the stories and what you find out uh, working with older adults the conversations I've had in the back of ambulances over the years you wish you could have recorded them because it's it's living history and some people have done some amazing things in their lives they just happen to tell you about. So uh, great combination. The word frailty, a few years ago, I think most of us hadn't heard of it. And uh, I'm hoping that you'll unpack it a little bit for us because uh, we tend to say things like frail older adult, which sort of trips off the tongue. But I, I know that's not necessarily a very good phrase to use, but I, I, I need to learn a bit more about this from you really, Carol. T- tell us about the word frailty. Uh, yeah, so I think first of all, frailty, it's, the word itself is absolutely brilliant for us as clinicians and, and our colleagues in social care to actually understand and get a picture of someone. So I think it's a really useful word. But actually, if you ask people what a frail person looks like, it's not always the full story. Um, many people will think of somebody, probably an older lady stuck in bed. But actually, there's different levels of frailty and depending on where somebody fits in. And I think the, the one thing is, just like we should think about everybody who has any kind of condition so whether it's an Alzheimer's or whether it's a dementia whether it's a a cancer is we should stop thinking about people as suffering with these kind of problems but actually they're living with them and some of them are living the best lives they can um, and adapting really well to their circumstances I think frailty as well uh, most patients and um, a lot of the uh, publications out there will say most older people do not like to be called frail so I think when we're talking about it and we're around patients it is actually a word that we should just be just make sure that we're saying it in a kind way and say more that people live with frailty or adapt to their frailty rather than that they are a frail person. I can totally see that because once you put a label on somebody they tend to either rebel against or conform to the label, don't they? And that, that issue um, occurs in a lot of areas of care, doesn't it? Particularly mental health as well. Yeah, yeah. So talking about frailty then and, and what it actually means, uh, I want to dig a little bit deeper and, and ask you, what, what are the things that make you uh, as a specialist and perhaps the rest of us as as, as non-specialists start to realise that this patient has issues which might be put together under the umbrella term of frailty, if you like. What sort of things do we look for? So with frailty, I think very much it's, it's a lot of things that we observe, but um, we may not always think to document and we may not always hand over. But actually, um, there is... The, the, what we can do as paramedics is we're actually getting to see that person within their own environment which is actually crucial and those those are the bits that the hospitals don't see so we can see how they're managing as well if you start throwing into a patient who may have some cognitive impairment when once we take them out of their own environment quite most people don't manage as well so if we can go in with a really good picture of how they are normally and whether we've observed that or that's what we've been told then that makes it really um, a 
really helpful for our colleagues in the hospitals or within community care to understand where that person is. So by that, there are several ways that you can look to um, measure or screen for frailty, because a lot of these tools are screening tools. And there's a few different um, ways. Very much the one that I know best and I'm used to is the Rockwood Clinical Frailty Score, or the Dalhousie, and that's where it has the levels of one to nine. But there's also the Freed, um, which again, that's that's that was prior to the Rockwood and how they uh, measure it is around unintentional weight loss um, exhaustion and that's like a self-reporting activity the walking time and the grip strength and I think the walking time for many older adults um, it's it doesn't take much actually for people to have that reduced resilience where they don't have the strength to be able to walk from one side of the room to the other in what would be a normal timing that it can be for somebody who isn't old I think the other thing as well around frailty is it's you don't have to be at whole old to have it, but actually, and not everybody who's old old is frail, but we need to consider it. And that's why I think the the clinical frailty scale is really useful because it starts at number one where somebody's actually really fit um, and they're really healthy and actually they're they're a number one, so they're not actually they're not living with any frailty they may not be on many meds or if they are on medications they're actually managing really well and I think it's really good because if we come across a person who presents to us who's had a fall and we ask them what they're normally like what we need to figure out is are they normally a one or are they normally a six um and then and it's quite hard to do to explain it but if anybody is listening if you are able to just google google the clinical frailty scale and bring it up and the the pictures that it shows um it can demonstrate um how and it gives you wording along the sides and i think from a paramedic point of view it gives us that that screening, that tool that makes it quick and easy for us to be able to understand where that patient is normally. And if we were to help them off the floor and they're not the normal self, then actually what else do we need to do? That's really helpful and really important because certainly when you're talking about uh, deterioration in in, in walking, uh, I've noticed elderly members of my own family how things change over time but as a paramedic you're kind of parachuted into the scene aren't you with uh, just a snapshot and it's really quite um, challenging to work out what is normal uh, for that person uh, any any tips from your experience yeah and I think that's a really good point about it we do as paramedics that's what we're seeing we're seeing a, a snapshot but actually what we do need to do is be able to portray that snapshot to other people so because a lot of the other people are involved in, in their care may be hospital consultants it might be the GPs but if this is somebody who's quite um it's still out doing their own shopping they will always go to that person nobody's coming into their own home so it's a really good opportunity for us to see how they're managing and the other part as well is and something you I noticed when my mum got older was around the fact that as I mentioned before around especially cognitive impairment but within her own home she was absolutely marvellous she knew where everything was she knew where she, she couldn't bump into things she knew where everything where everything happened but as soon as you take them out of that environment that can really increase so it's good if you're t- if we're taking them out of their own environment and then taking them to a hospital to say that actually in their own environment that they manage very well, I think that's vital because 
with uh, if you think about older adults there's so many risk factors towards frailty and it's not just about their conditions and their medications which are a big part of it but actually there's all the sensory impairments as well the loss of hearing the vision might not be as good um very focals are a massive issue I know myself at the young age of 21, and we'll just go with me being 21. A couple of years ago. <laughs> um, I wear very focals, and I do have a habit of tripping over my husband's work bag. <laughs> but if you can imagine, but because that's one of the things around very focals, but actually a lot of older people do wear very focals, so the glasses actually become an issue for them. And then they might have hearing problems, but they don't feel the hearing, the 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 hearing aids are working but it might be that they just need batteries or it might be that there's too many people speaking at the same time so it's not clear to them so we've got all these other sensory impairments so actually when you look at frailty it's not just the medications and their disease process it is around their sensory and also about the things that we don't know about as paramedics and we don't have access to which is what are their bloods like is this patient normally anemic um, does she take medication for that has she been anemic for a long time so there's all these other factors that things that we don't know about but the things that we can see so if we can see that somebody's more than able to make their own meals and manage really well at their own home but we're about to take them to hospital because they might need to go for an x-ray it's important because once they get into that environment they might not be able to demonstrate that they can do all those things independently yeah that sounds critical to me does your role as a community paramedic enable you to get a little bit more of an ongoing handle on on patients that are um, uh, perhaps known in, in, in your particular community yeah, and I think that's very much where the community paramedic works really well because I will go to multidisciplinary team meetings um, and that's for, in one of my areas in Nutsford, that is very much where doctors, um, nurses, social, um, the medications management, there's there's lots of people, OT, physio, all come together and we will discuss people who are at risk of admission to hospital. And actually, and it's all a bit of a, a, a sense checkers to, to make sure, have we been involved? Is there somebody around that table that could be beneficial for that patient? And for me, from an ambulance point of view, uh, um, is thinking about how many times has that patient called 99? Why are they ringing us? Could something else be done for them further down the line? Could something be done earlier that would prevent them having that fall or those numerous falls so part of me going to that meeting is to see what they're doing and actually to look at have we been to this patient before or if it's not is this the patient that I need to keep a lookout for because this sounds like somebody who is very vulnerable and is going to be a high risk fall so my role allows me to do that and then also to look at putting care plans in place and within those care plans I can record what a patient's frailty score is or whether it's mild moderate or severe And within that as well, GPs now within their system do have, um, it comes up in a little box at the bottom right, for any of their patients that are classed as severely frail, is that um, they will have that there. Um, But that's a computer-generated one that is basically working on population. Um, So it does take out from, from the information that the GPs hold. And it is around that cognition their disease processes, their medications, their blood results and any other results, and also their sensory impairments. And it works out what their risk is or how how 
frail a person might be. Um, and the ones that are severely frail, it puts a flag on it, doesn't do it for everybody. And so GPs are required, or people within the GP practice, to consider that people who are severely frail to make sure that they're getting an annual review of their medications. And I know we are going to speak a little bit about delirium and very much when I medications are a really big factor of that so being able to hand over this kind of information and what we're witnesses and what we can put into a care plan can really help not just paramedics who are going to that address but it might be anybody else who has to go um, as long as the patient agrees that that care plan can be shared. It's amazing the role of good information isn't it in patient care and how for so many years the the paramedics working on ambulances at least we we've just lacked information we've had to go looking for it um if it's there available either either on scene or perhaps you know even through electronic systems that there's got to be much better for the patient is it for us to to know their baselines and and know where they're heading yeah and i think i know from my service we're, we're still um a patient report forms are still on paper i know not all ambulance services are we are moving towards an electronic version um but also at the same time we are starting and it's not all our staff and it it's going to take time but we are starting to get, be able to get um be able to view patients records through their summary care records um, so things like that are coming but it's very slow and it's not to everybody and it might be held within a within a center where they can access it so I do think over the next few years a lot of this will become a lot easier for us to have that information but at the moment I think we are still a mixture and more of the community teams as the NHS tries to become paperless it's leaving less for us to to be able to compare and review when we're having a consultation with a patient at their home. Mm. I think the other thing as well is just to make you aware is that with the the, the, the Dahousey um, Clinical Frailty Scale, that has only ever been um, tested on patients who are over the age of 65. So even though people under the age of 65 may have the level of frailty due to their um you know, that could be due to their conditions, but actually it's actually only ever been tested on the over 65s. So I know that's one of the things that's been coming through at the moment and through the media. Um, and so it's always worth, even though it's it's good for us to know and be able to go to examine, we shouldn't always automatically apply the frailty scale to just everybody. It's a good, good message, yes. Right, right tool for the right patient. Um, you mentioned delirium uh, a little while ago, and I've heard you speak about this before. Uh, I'd like to understand it a little bit better, really. What what causes it, and, and how does it differ? I, I, I'm going to say, how does it differ from dementia? I know dementia is a huge subject in its own, its own right, and maybe we'll return to that another day. But tell us a bit about delirium. So delirium, um, so delirium is something that I know, and I look back um, as being with the ambulance service for 18 years, that definitely in my uh, early career, I have not recognised delirium because I think up until a few years ago, delirium was something that kind of more mental health were aware of within hospitals. But I think it's become a really, it's come to be known how prevalent it is. It's very much always been associated with people after surgeries. Um, so it was always something that they kind of would check for or scream for after They've had surgeries. So a lot of older people who'd had hip replacements, they were very prone to having a delirium. But there is so many um, different things. And I think 
we're seeing it more and more, but I think we see it more and more because we're becoming more and more aware of it, which is a really good thing. Delirium can be caused by many things. So as I mentioned before, medication. So there's something called the anti-collagenic burden. And there's a brilliant calculator you can just Google and it's called the ACB calculator. You can put in medications and it will tell you how, how much risk a patient is at of having episodes of delirium. Um, so that's one thing which is absolutely marvellous. So codeine is a really big factor in it, plus lots of other medications. But um, we go to lots of older people who may be on codeine or may have been put on codeine recently and know they're not quite themselves. So when we think about delirium, there's three types of it. There's um, a hyperactive, and there's a hypoactive, and then just to add confusion, there's, there's people who can present with both because we, we don't make it easy, do we? <laughs> um, so yeah, when we think about um, delirium and the difference between the dementias, Delirium is something that will usually come on very acutely. It will happen rapidly, normally within a, a, a few days or for a lot of people, a few hours. And it will be that patient who suddenly was absolutely fine, but now they are very confused. They're not behaving normally. Sometimes they have this um, where they will do... Um, kind of picking um you might have seen it people do this like picking in the air so yeah. that can be one of yeah so that can be a sign of like a, a hyperactive that's one of them or picking at their clothes um so that can be a sign of the hyperactive deliriums with with the hyperactive it's a lot easier to recognize because basically you're going to somebody who is uh, acutely confused and when you think about our news too and what a lot of our um what a lot of the ambulance services are using. The new t news two does put acutely confused as a higher score. We then have the hypoactive, and the mortality for hypoactive is actually higher than the hyperactive. And these are the ones that's really hard to see. But what I would say is, and I know myself, and this is where I say I've missed it over many years, um, is when you go to the care home to see the person, the older person in a bed, and the care home staff say to you, they're just not themselves. And that's mm. quite often what, what you're presented with. Um, they're sleeping more or they just don't want to get out of bed today and that's not normal for them. And there will be people who have dementias who have fluctuations, but they'll be known to have fluctuations where they may have good days and bad days. Um, this would be somebody who is not known to do these things, is normally up and about, would normally get up without a problem. But today they just don't seem to want to engage. They might be quite slow at processing information as well. That's another thing that is kind of, can, you can pick up on is they can tell you everything and they, they, come across, they, they, they might pass a capacity assessment because they can tell you everything. But when you ask a friend or a relative about it, they just say they just seem to be really slow in the processing of the information, what you're asking them and how they're telling it to you so they're like really key points that can help you recognize it and obviously mixed motors um that's the other one is is a mixture of the two so people can go between the two um i think the big part of delirium is we need to know what's causing it to know how to treat it and if we don't know what's causing it these are people who we should be taking to hospital if we've not at the very least, have a clinical discussion with either your own clinical team, with their own GP, ideally somebody who knows them. But if we can't find out what's wrong, and for a lot of them, it might be quite obvious the fact that they have got a chest infection at the same time. They might be, they might, they might present to us as a fall. Um, and I know one gentleman I went to see, he presented as 
he he was top as I went in, he was on the floor and he told me he was trying to find he dropped some tablets and he was trying to find the tablets off the floor. So as it is in the ambulance service, you always you're not sure if that's true and it's quite yeah. it's patterned carpet, so you do. I was down on my all fours looking for the tablet <laughs> on the floor because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't about to put a label on him of being yeah. of what's yeah. something happening to make sure. Uh, and and basically it turned out that this gentleman was normally the carer for the lady who was in the chair. And then he'd had just sudden deterioration where that morning he provided um, breakfast for this lady, done everything normal, and then suddenly just got, as she put it, just not himself, confused and, and started crawling around the floor. Now, for him, we, we couldn't identify what was causing his... He didn't seem to have any signs of a stroke because you start thinking of all those cerebral signs, but there was nothing clearly obvious to say it was one thing or another. The other thing was that he just wasn't behaving as his normal self. Um, and she and she mentioned that he had had a cough for a couple of days, but he didn't seem to be coughing when he was with us. And this was going back prior to COVID, I'd like to point yeah, out. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, so with this gentleman, he wasn't safe to stay at that home. Uh, and that's the other part is um, some people... With delirium, we could leave in a safe environment, knowing what's causing it and having that clinical discussion and making sure there's that follow-on care. But for other people, we, we it's not safe to leave them at home because we don't know what's causing or we're not definitive about what's causing that delirium. And actually, if they're meant to be caring for somebody else and incapable of doing that, then we have to think about what's right for everybody. And again, there's always the um, potentially safeguarding things that we come against um, when we see any patients. It's fascinating, isn't it? I think those, those fragile situations of care are very, very common, aren't they, where uh, one person uh, with a lot of um, challenges, be they physical challenges or mental challenges or a combination of both, they're caring for another person who's got uh, perhaps a greater level of challenges uh, and it's difficult to unpack and, and uh, uh, find the support sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, and I think very much with the delirium, it is looking, and again, when we say about thinking about that with frailty as well, you're looking at that two weeks before. With, with delirium, there is another screening tool, you know, it's called the 4AT. It is something that you can go online. We use it within my trust. But actually, um, it's, it, it hasn't been tried. It hasn't been tested within or validated within the community. But actually, there's nothing that's been validated within the community. So it is a good tool. You don't need to actually have training. It's just a matter of going through some questions but what that can do is help you to differentiate to help you find out if something's new for that patient quite a lot of it though if you're seeing a patient who's by themselves it is hard to differentiate between whether they have a long-standing dementia or delirium and um, that's what the tool does say it could be one or the other because unless you've got anybody who can validate whether they were like that previously or not that's where the difficulty comes yeah i see um I think what I'm getting from this is that, uh, you know, particularly around delirium, uh, investigating the causes is so important because if there are treatable conditions or treatable issues or, or challenges with multiple medications that can be addressed, then then you know potentially it can be slowed or even halted. Uh, is that is that correct? Yeah, yeah, and that's exactly it. So delirium is reversible, and that's what we must remember. It is a reversible. So sorry that didn't come out right. Uh, it is reversible. <laughs> so um, 
So basically, we need to know what's wrong to be able to treat it. Because if you look at some of the things, as I mentioned, medication, but you've also got dehydration, you've got pain, somebody might be in pain, especially somebody who might not be actually, uh, they might not communicate, they might be in the nursing home, but actually they might be acting just very differently, but they might never been able to tell anybody that they've been having pain somewhere. So it does make things, you know, it is very difficult, but this acute change is really important because we can reverse it. We just need to know what's causing it to reverse it. Mm, that's good. It's a good message. And, and of course, you did very briefly mention COVID and for anybody listening to this, at some unspecified time in the future. We are recording this on the 1st of May, 2020. Uh, We are uh, quite some way into the UK response to COVID-19 and the challenges that that's brought. So uh, I I do need to ask you, Carol, what do you think has been the impact of uh, COVID on uh, persons who are living with frailty and, and what what have you seen and, and what do you think we need to prepare for as as the, um, the pandemic moves into perhaps a different phase yeah I think very much with the with the covid um very much we we all know that the everybody talks about the cough and the high temperature and I think just like any other infection older people don't always present so one of the things that I was reading was around that actually a lot of them um, around the covid are not presenting with with temperatures so I think we should have a suspicion of it in a lot of older people and I think the problem is we've got is old people don't present normally with infections to younger people anyway and that's why we go to them and we find out that they might have a delirium and the underlying cause of the delirium is the infection that's very much I think what we're going to see with a COVID or patient you know we have seen is that new acute confusion but all their observations might not actually be that bad they might not have a high temperature I think um one of the things that's coming out very much uh, um, at the moment is around this um silent hypoxia um yeah so and I think that's something is to make sure is 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 to be checking the oxygen saturations on old person because basically they don't look like they're going to be hypoxic but then they are having very low um sats readings but I think Again, I think we're going to see because it is, it you know, it's a viral infection. So we're going to be seeing um, COVID will present like any other infection in a lot of older people. So I think we should have a high suspicion of it. And I think even as we go through it, and maybe we at some stage we will start to relax the, the PPE. But with older people, I do wonder whether when they're, when they're presenting and we don't know a history, if there's still the strains and we still know that it's, it's presence within our communities, we still need to consider thinking about PPE. The worst thing about the PPE, though, means wearing one of those masks, which is one of the worst things for older people, especially somebody who's with, yeah, with the dementia. And it, I saw somewhere that somebody's been making these see-through ones. I'd love to think one day that's what we can have. So people, older people, especially those who are confused, can see us smiling through and trying to encourage them and reassure them. But I think very much that um, that silent hypoxia is, a, but just be suspicious, just because they haven't got a high temperature or a cough, don't think it might not be COVID. I've seen reports of some abdominal pains, Obviously, a lot of old people get dehydration anyway, but a lot of them, 
reports around anybody losing the taste. But if an old person, if that's happening to them, the senses aren't as strong anyway when they're old. So they might not recognise that something's changing. So I think if that acute confusion is probably one of our biggest telltale signs that something could be wrong um and i don't think there is anything just specific around covid because i think how they're presenting is very much similar to how they could for any infection but just don't think it's not covid when they don't have a high temperature that's really important isn't it yeah the more i read about covid the more i read about the um uh, the less common presentations but saying that they're less common doesn't mean you're not going to see them because they're, they're still more common than, than you think they are. Yeah. <laughs> I hope that makes some kind of sense. Uh, but uh, uh, the, the other thing that's, uh, of course, been um, troubling uh, a lot of us is is the impact of COVID, not so much on, on the persons who may or may not have it, but on the whole cultural change of what we call lockdown and, and having to be isolated uh, when we know that actually isolation is... Um, uh, social isolation, even in normal times, is a real big problem for some of our elderly folk. Yeah, um, and one thing, sorry, I must say as well, is that I noticed um, you used the word elderly. <laughs> and what I would say is we uh, very much, um, one thing that's been identifying very much within publications now is that we try not to use the word elderly. So, and I've been um, Yeah, tell shouting... me more, educate <laughs> So I've I've been shouting at the TV nearly every night of those bulletins when they keep referring to our elderly population. Um, Very much it's trying to move away from the elderly. I think, again, people don't like the term, or older people don't like the term elderly. I think elders probably sounds quite nice <laughs> but um yes, exactly, yeah. yeah and the elders set makes you sound like you're on a committee of important people um, <laughs> that's interesting though isn't it because in in many many cultures the the older folk are the revered and the most important and the wiser yeah people of the community and we've we've kind of we've lost that in yeah Definitely. And I think very much with the COVID, you know, you see uh, very much you look at the TV and what what they're saying. And there is a really strong feeling that people, especially in the care homes, um, have been kind of left to a side just because they're older, because we do know that um, that older people don't recover as as much as younger people do. So I think that's a big part of it. But one of the things I'd say to anybody is it's not all about age. It's about all these things. So we need to think about what not writing people off just because they're older basically I think it's important to make sure that we look after them but going back to the social isolation side of it that's that's a really big point I have a cousin who's 70 out very active but having to stay in you know and, and she's finding it really hard and um, there's loads of grandparents great grandparents who are not seeing and I think from an ambulance point of view I've become aware of them again because I have that ability to be within the community and know and we can look at patients who are who are calling us more so actually some people are actually presenting by calling 999 because who else do they call who will come to them when they're getting very anxious about all these things and what I would say is if you are called to anybody like that nearly every local authority um, has loads of people who are there loads of supporters loads of volunteers at the moment we might struggle normally day to day with the people who are socially isolated but at the moment with covid there's so many people who are volunteering and willing to help these people so 
if you if it's not known to you within your trust or the area you work just have a look on your local authority to see because a lot of them have a, a somewhere that you can sign up to um, for volunteers and they will be able to put them in touch and even if you make the phone call for the person while you're with them because a lot as well of older people is a lot of things are online and not everybody who's older knows how to go online and do these things you know the they can use the telephone, but then as well, for the telephone can be difficult if you have hearing problems. I went to one patient who still had a dial-up phone. So, you know, the old-fashioned ones, which a lot oh, of those yeah. younger people will not have ever seen, where you dial it up. Well, you can't get to any of the... Um, if, when it's saying to, you know, press two for this and press one for this, yeah. you can't do that on a dial phone. So there's a lot That's of things amazing. that... Yeah, there's a lot of things that people get cut off from just because they're older and, and, and don't have up-to-date technology. So I think it's thinking and maybe whilst we're with them, it's thinking about what can we do and can we make a phone call for them and make that first contact, then at least we can get things sorted. I think that's so important. You, there's so many of us take the technology for granted, uh, but there are many, many people out there that don't access it i couldn't help noticing the irony the other day uh, i think it was the church of england put something online about services for people who aren't online and then i retweeted it and then i thought that's a bit silly they're not going to see it yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah thank you some 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 great uh, advice and help there and how, how's the covid situation affected your own work um, so very much because, as I say, we a lot of minds around multidisciplinary meetings. I do go and see people. We do have a, um, a, a a whole team who deals with people who call us often. But actually, what I try and do is pick up on the people who don't trigger those, but we can see a pattern um, starting to see who else we can help. So it's quite d- different at the moment because none of those meetings can take place. A lot of people are so busy. Um, thinking about the COVID response and the PPE. So old people aren't getting the visits that they would have once. Even though GPs can do a lot of the video calling, if an older person, again, by themselves, they're probably ringing off a house phone. So a lot of my work isn't happening um, like that at the moment. I am trying to do it very much from the background. But my role recently, one, I've been doing some swabbing. So I've been going out and swabbing our staff and the families, you know, so we can get them tested. Yeah, so... That's one of the things I've been doing. But also, um, I've been doing some shifts within the Nightingale in Manchester, or the, the Northwest Nightingale. Um, oh. And very much um, the Nightingale within the Northwest is looking at it being a step down care. So, this is normally for people who have been in hospital, have ha- had a, possibly an ICU stay, and are now coming through. And then we're looking at them coming into the Nightingale. And my role very much is around that the clinical coordinating of how we get those people into the nightingale um and we have a team it's not just me there's there's a lot of us and it's looking at um making sure that those patients are moved safely by our staff with the correct ppe and also um they understand what happens when you come because we have a lot of procedures um but supporting staff as well who are coming to the nightingale to ensure they know what 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 will happen um how that process works um and to give them any clinical advice or support that's needed should should they require it en route to us carol i I can't think of a a better person to be doing a role like that because you have such a good understanding of how different environments affect us uh, whether we're a patient or whether we're a member of staff 
how uh, changing circumstances, the, 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 the nuances of how it can affect our grip on reality, if you like, or our understanding of, of what we're doing, our performance. So I really wish you well in that role. And hopefully we'll uh, we'll find out a bit more about that in, in uh, times to come and, and how it's gone. I think what taking everything together, everything you've shared with us about frailty and about um, the, the current situation in, in COVID, one of the things I've really picked up is how your your antenna are, are so well tuned to things that perhaps most paramedics wouldn't think of uh, normally in a patient assessment. So if you could change a couple of things about the way we, we practice as paramedics or the way we uh, assess, what, what, what would those things be? What would you like to just um, start start the frailty revolution with? Um, I think, first of all, is to get it a bit more into the paramedic courses at university. I've done a couple of things, you know, within the universities. I know some are, but it's literally um, a couple of hours session. I'm not sure how much time is spent around how you would help an older person off the floor. You know, that might be more around the manual handling, but rather Mm -hmm. than actually what are the considerations around an older person that's been on the floor? Um, what do we need to think of? When is when should we be taking somebody into hospital who's been on the floor? You know, is the timescales are the things that we should look for? So so I think there's a lot more education that's needed because actually if we look at our figures, um, the things that we really focus on, the trauma, the cardiac arrest, the maternities, they're really small amounts of our work and that's probably why we focus on them because we're not going to them often. What we are normally going to every day is an older person, but actually are we doing our utmost for that older person or are we seeing this as it's not really our work because everything, if you focus our training as a paramedic to aim towards all the traumas and all the cardiac arrests, people to begin to think that the older people or the falls on the floor or the general stuff isn't actually part of what you do as a paramedic. When when you look at the numbers, actually it's around about 40% of what we do and within my trust is going to people over 65. It's a really big percentage. But when you look at those numbers, that's still a really low percentage of cardiac arrests, even though they are older people. And I think as well, uh, you know, you can take that into then as well, the dementias that go alongside and how best to manage. And there are lots of what I would say as well, just for anybody listening, and if if it is still within COVID times, there are some really good policies, nearly every uh, place. So like the British Geriatric Society, um, I know some of the GP updates, all these online resources that you normally have to pay to join. Are giving and letting you access anything around COVID, so that's the first thing is that you've you've always got some support to to help with that. Completely that's lost great. the track of what yeah. I was saying there. You know? <laughs> 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 I lost the track. Because, there. I was going to come back to something I else. I love your passion for your subject, and you, and you really you're in the zone because you were talking about education. And, yeah, and um, right. Um, the, the, some of the things you've mentioned today about uh, checking what uh, is normal for somebody's eyesight, whether they wear glasses or very focused, yeah. so um, you hearing um, and you how they are in, in a new environment, all those kind of things, um, you won't find those in the standard EMS patient assessment test- textbooks. No. Um, and I think very much if, you know, uh, go thinking about doing the other part of the the learning, you know, with the um, the one with slides, I think that's very much is what, you know, can look at including is around um, 
all those risk factors for older people and what things to look for and how simple is it that if you were to change your glasses you might actually stop falling over as much um it's a really simple thing but we don't think about it one of the things that I know I haven't said, and I don't know whether you could, um, if I was just to come out with a line, somehow edit it back in later, but is is that possible? It's only because over the delirium, uh, what I didn't say is that delirium can last from basically a few hours to a few months. <laughs> um, I'll have to, I'll have to think about that. You put me on the spot there. So thank you, Carol. You've given us a fantastic introduction to frailty and some of the issues around uh, persons living with frailty and how we might assess and manage them in the community. There's, there's many more things we haven't talked about, and I'm really looking forward to the uh, lecture that uh, you, you've promised to record for us that we'll put on the College of Paramedics CPD Hub to give us a, a, some more detail and, and some more guidance. But thank you ever so much for your time. Uh, wish you well in the, uh, the, the change of role at the moment, uh, and uh, hopefully we'll be speaking to you again soon. Thank you very much. Thanks, Carol. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Paramedic Insight Podcast from the College of Paramedics.